there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday, and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide, and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a podcast about difficult conversations and relationships and politics and politics and relationships and the way those things influence each other. It's a particularly special episode today. Uh, first of all, there's some stunt casting involved, a special crossover episode, uh, like, you know, when Buffy would be on Angel or Angel would be on Buffy. Um, I am doing this show today with my friend John Moe, who's the host of the Hilarious World of Depression podcast, which explores the world of depression through the lens of comedy. It's actually really great. And if you have an interest in either comedy or mental health issues, you should check it out. Um, and the other thing that's uh, particularly special about this episode of With Friends Like These is that... Um, well, we couldn't decide if we had two hosts or two guests, or maybe we had two hosts and two guests, uh, but basically we interview each other and we talk about uh, depression. We actually talk about suicide too. And if that's something that upsets you particularly, you might want to skip this episode. Uh, if you feel like you can hang in there, please do. Um, it's not just a special episode in some ways. Uh, it's a pretty important episode. Thanks for listening. I guess we should introduce ourselves. Should we introduce each other here? Um, let's introduce ourselves because I, I feel like um, I always feel awkward introducing other people. Yeah, it so. feels a little like The Tonight Show. Yeah. I'm John Moe. I'm the host of The Hilarious World of Depression. And I am Anna Marie Cox, and I am the host of With Friends Like These. It is a, a two-host no guest or two host double guest? I think it's two host double guest. Two host double I like guest. To think, I like to think in forms of multipliers. Hosts and guests squared. It's hosting guests squared. Now, for, for listeners of my show, can you fill us in a little bit on, on what your show is all about? Sure. Uh, it is ostensibly sort of about politics. Um, it's with the Crooked Media Network, which is the Pod Save America, Pod Save the World, Pod Save Us All. I'm the, I think, the only non-pod, <laughs> really non-pod titled. Uh, pod show. bless the Queen. Pod bless the Queen. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's about, I the long version. It's about relationships and politics, and politics and relationships. Uh, how our politics have an impact on our relationships, and the other way around. And it's also about having conversations that you maybe have avoided or you didn't realize you had to have. Mm -hmm. uh, I did. I've had conversations with people 
uh, in the disability rights community uh, about just being disabled, like yep. which is something that a lot of abled people don't kind of realize. They think you're not supposed to point it out, <laughs> right. you know, right. like you're not supposed to actually talk about the disabled disabled people. If you don't talk about their disability, maybe they'll forget that they have exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really more like maybe I get to forget that they have it, right? Right, right. Um, I talked with my good friend Ira Madison III about being my black friend um, and being kind of the black friend in a lot of relationships, yes. like what that's like. I love that episode. Yeah, it's it's he's hilarious. Um, and we talk about politics, too. I have a sort of reoccurring uh, guest, Rick Wilson, who's a you know diehard, never-Trumper. But uh, for the most part, the guys at Pod Save America don't like it when I say it's a show about uh, awkward conversations because they think people don't want to listen in on awkward mm, conversations. Right. But it, it's a show about awkward conversations. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a show about de-awkwardizing a lot of those yeah, conversations. Yeah, and, and being aware of them, uh, being aware of what the awkwardness is um, and, and going ahead and kind of diving through it because one of the things that we talked about, you know, when I talked to Ira, was uh, discomfort as a tool of oppression. Mm. Meaning, you know, I think a lot of white, able, cis people who are not, you know, any part of ma- very many vulnerable groups really hate being made aware of other people's discomfort and hate being uncomfortable themselves. Right. Would prefer to live life in comfort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Comfort's awesome. Comfort, their, their comfort zone. Uh, and so in a way, like your comfort, if you maintain, if you stay in a comfort zone, like you, it, that's a tool of oppression. Mm. It, and you need to, in order, if you want to, you know, be down with the woke folk. <laughs> you got to get a little uncomfortable. Got to get a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, my show, The Hilarious World yes, of Depression. Yes, please. For, I, I, and for my listeners, please. Yes. yes. Uh, produced by American Public Media here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, is a discussion about clinical depression, or ClinyD, as we sometimes name it on the show, <laughs> uh, told through the lens of comedy and comedians. It's a, a topic that I think needs to be talked about a lot more, given how pervasive it is and how silent it often is. And so I got in touch with a bunch of my friends from the comedy world uh, who deal with clinical depression, and we talk about it. We talk about what's funny about it, what's human about it. And the idea is that you're more likely to want to hear about it from Maria Bamford than from uh, a medical expert. And so it's, it's a little bit of sugarcoating to to let the pill go down. There is a remarkable overlap, of course, in those communities. Yes. Yeah. In the comedy and depression community. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm started wondering, the are there comedians thing. that don't get depressed? There's a few. I, okay. I found a few who I tried to book. You should try, I was going to say you should interview them. Yeah. And I tried to book them and they're like, oh, I'd love to be on your show. I'm not actually depressed. What's that like, though? Know, right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been big disagreement, too, about whether the... Uh, whether that job attracts depressed people or turns them into depressed people. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people say, well, no, it's just there's as many depressed people in comedy as there are in among postmen. But your postman doesn't go on stage and talk about suicidal ideation. Uh, your, your dentist <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't come up in their line of work. Right. Like when they give you the mail, they're not like, oh, by the way. By the way, I thought about <laughs> killing myself this morning. Yeah, your, your dentist <laughs> isn't talking about despair. And if so, you wouldn't go to that dentist. Right. Um, but then a lot of people say, too, that it's, uh, it's sort of this perspective on life that you might gain through depression, where, mm-hmm. you, where you can 
you know, you've looked at the void before. And a lot of people have looked at it, even if they aren't willing to say it. So if you make a joke about the void and the meaninglessness and the despair, that's going to get a laugh because people recognize that from the secret parts of their own brain that they haven't wanted to recognize, right. so I, to speak. Yeah, you know, there's the same kind of debate about uh, alcoholics yeah. and addicts and creative professions. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, part of me... I wants to think that the statistics are statistics and we're not that special, uh-huh. you know? Right. Um, and there are, you know, probably your postman. <laughs> now I'm thinking about this poor, drug-addicted, yeah. depressed postman <laughs> out there, the poor guy. <laughs> you deserve help, you yeah. know? Uh, but alcoholics and addicts are some of the funniest people I've ever met, some of the smartest people I've ever met. You go to a 12-step meeting and you will laugh, I promise you. Yeah. In fact, like, I've told my stories um, – you know, about my recovery in non-12-step context, whether for, you know, um, uh, trying to be of service in other ways, like letting, you know, I think of them either civilians or earthlings. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're called normies. <laughs> um, we know what my, what my story has been like. And I have some lines in my story that I think are hilarious and this they do not go over well. They don't play. They do not play with the people who haven't been through it. They think there are jo- jokes about my depression, jokes about my bottom out, you know. Do you have any that you, you remember offhand or are they all contextual? Oh, they're all super contextual. Okay. You know, except, I mean, except just, just describing like my time in the psych ward, which I've, I've spoken to you about before. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to get to that. And and sort of the genesis of our, our conversation here is is. We've known each other for a while, and we got to talking about our shows, and we realized that on the Venn diagram, there's a, a big, <laughs> big overlap. Well, but in our specific interest, and Venn diagram with us, like, yeah. and I, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna, you know, my show is about awkward conversations, about talking about the stuff you don't talk about, and I know there's something that you don't talk about. Let's do it. Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. Um, so. I have talked briefly on my show about my own depression, and this is something I've been dealing with since junior high school at least and only diagnosed until – not diagnosed until I was I think around 30, uh, maybe even a little bit past 30. And so I've been on a mission in that sense, but the event that – has sort of driven my my fervor along these lines was the death of my brother by suicide. Uh, My brother Rick died – uh, in April of 2007, and he had been uh, a drug addict for many years. I mean, I guess once a drug addict, always a drug addict. That's the language, right? Yeah. Uh, active. Yes, yes. Yeah. He was an inactive drug addict, um, <laughs> as far as we know. Uh, for several years leading up to his death, he volunteered on a sobriety hotline, and he was uh, – he was evidently clean, and I, I keep putting those qualifiers in there of as far as we know and as evidently because his form of addiction, he when he was using, he was full of lies. Mm-hmm. He was just an incredibly charismatic guy. Everybody who came into contact with him wanted to be around him some more, um, and he was able to use that to get all the – the drugs and money and shelter and <laughs> services that that he needed. Um, he was very, very good at it. And so he went through uh, some sort of university clinical trial treatment thing, we are told, mm-hmm. again with the qualifiers, and seemed to sober up. But uh, he um, – I mean he had used some hard stuff. He would used a lot of methamphetamine and – uh, when at the point he died, he had been depressed for some time, according to 
people who knew him. He lived in San Diego. I lived in Seattle when it happened. And he had, he had confided in them a little bit about what was going on. He had gotten his ex-girlfriend pregnant. Mm. And he was at the age of, I think, 45, about to be a father for the first time and was really terrified of that. He told me um, several months before he died, he told me Christmas, the, the Christmas before. And it was really remarkable because I thought – He's telling me about being terrified of being a parent. And everybody I know who's had kids has been terrified of being a parent. You'd be crazy not to be. But there wasn't the uh, the excitement that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. The sort of I've, you know, I'm going to have a new best friend. <laughs> you know, that, I have reproduced. Yes, yes. I, I've fulfilled my biological yeah. imperative and, and I've reproduced. Um, but I didn't think much of it, and I didn't even know he was depressed. And from what I have gathered, which isn't much from his life down there, he received a a recommendation from a doctor that he get to inpatient mm-hmm. treatment, that he that this is very serious, what he's facing. And he didn't want to do that, and he was ashamed of that. He was ashamed of his mental illness, and he was terrified that that he had reproduced and uh, he went to a gun range in San Diego, um, signed up for a membership a couple weeks before, had never been there as a member, uh, showed up, uh, bought, bought one box of bullets that um, he never opened. He went, so he went into the gun range, bought a box of bullets, went out to the range and shot himself with a bullet that he had been carrying around in his pocket. Mm. Um, and uh, when I got the call that he had shot himself, my wife called me and I said, I, I just remember the most calm I think I'd ever been. I just said, oh, is he dead? Mm. And she said, I don't think so, but you need to get down there. You need to go to the airport right now and and get to to San Diego and I found out that it was at a gun range. My first book had come out a few months before that in in October of 2006 and uh, one of the chapters in it, I go to a gun range and I talk about how uh, I had to go there with a friend because the gun range wouldn't allow someone who wasn't a member to go there by themselves and my brother had read my book and so he had joined this gun range and then and then killed himself there. Um, so, you know, that's that's a burden of responsibility I've been carrying around for a while, over 10 years now. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I got the call to, to you know, that, that he, this had happened. I flew down there with, with my mom and my sister, and uh, we got there uh, to the emergency room just before he died. And then he died once we were there. So at the at the the service we had a service down there and a service up in Seattle and I thought well this sucks <laughs> um and it sucks that I didn't know that this was happening it sucks that he felt a need to do this um and it was it was the illness that did you know I I told my my son was in kindergarten at the time I said well your uncle had had a brain disease that we didn't know about, and it killed him because I wanted to protect 
my five-year-old, but I also wanted to tell the truth. That's the, that is the truth. It is the truth. The truth. And, um, and I thought there, there's got to be – people need to talk about this more. And, and, and I've been trying to talk about it in any venue I could find ever since, and, and this has been probably the, the loudest I've been able to talk about it is this podcast. Right. And so as someone who's a um, – in my, my, my part of this conversation is that I'm a survivor yeah. of a suicide attempt, actually, a couple. Yeah. Which I, I'm not – I don't keep a secret, but I don't really talk about in this public venue. So, hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey. Tell, hey. Me about, tell me about the tattoo on your arm. Oh. Yes, that is one of the ways that I've decided to be public about it. Yeah. Uh, I have – I think it's a very poetic way. Well, so um, I started getting tattoos after I got sober. Uh, and they all have kind of stories about them. And one of – the second one I got was actually a pen – it's a fountain pen. It's on my forearm. Uh, it hap- it's sort of in honor of my father who collects fountain pens. Also, mm. I'm, hey, you know, I'm a writer. It's a little literal. Right. <laughs> um, but last year— And writers are always losing their pens. I know. You've got this one is like right the there. only fountain pen I've never lost. There you go. Um, uh, the, but then last year, I added a little something. I added a, a semicolon at the end of the pen, as though the pen had written it. And the semicolon is a— you know, unofficial um, symbol of survivorship. Uh, survivorship of, I think some people use it as general mental illness, but mm-hmm. it's it started pretty specifically as a... People who have attempted. Uh, people who have attempted suicide. And what it means is that you kept going. Like, you could have stopped, but you kept going. Right. As I, writers usually especially appreciate the sentiment there. Yes. Uh, and I did. I, and, and so I have it on my arm when people ask about it. You know, I, I do tell them. Uh, I, I'm really open about being in recovery from my other disease, right? Mm-hmm. My, my addiction. It is tougher. I've become more open about being bipolar. So this is like the <laughs> this is the reveal on top of reveal. Yeah. Although it's funny, like if you look at the Venn diagram for people who have um, – Bipolar disorder, people who are addicts, alcoholics, and people who have tried to commit suicide. Like, you're going to, that's, statistically, I would, you, you could have guessed. Right. It would have been a pretty safe guess. Uh, people who have. That su- you were bipolar? <laughs> that I would attempt suicide. Oh, I would have attempted attempt suicide. suicide. Yeah. Just because it's, I read one statistic that it's something like 45% of those with substance abuse disorder have attempted wow. suicide at one point or another. I know the statistic a little more firmly that six times people with substance abuse disorders are six times more likely uh, to attempt suicide. People with co-occurring disorder, meaning substance abuse and some other mental illness, um, have like a 30% suicide, like 30% more likely to have suicidal ideations. It's it, Those three things, like I hit the jackpot, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and I always, you know, I was listening to your story, which of course is heartbreaking, um, but we you know one of the reasons I want to be out uh, is to be of service, not to just people who I think should be talking about their own. Um, again, we have to talk about our language. The struggle is it a struggle? Challenges? Yeah. Uh, I, I try to avoid the word fight because depressives, you know, would rather sit around in their sweats than than fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, we have to come up with better language. But yeah. I, you know, I want I I definitely want to be out about it because I think that. Stigma does prevent people from seeking help. 
but also I want to be out because I feel like I have a message for survivors, uh, the families, or uh, those who, the people whose families have gone through this uh, and a successful suicide attempt uh, in the family, which is that, and I know you must have heard this, but there's nothing you could have done. Yeah. Yeah. There really isn't. I. It's, that's, yes. <laughs> I hope that helps to hear it from me. No, it does. It does. I mean, it, it does help to hear it a thousand times. Um, and I can convince myself of that plenty of times, but it's, you know, it, uh, these things are, are complicated and, right. they, and they recur. Because in the end, it is sort of like an addiction in, in the sense that it's ultimately, it is an illness, yes, mm-hmm. but it ultimately resides within the person. Yes. And, and much as with, an, I, I'm sure a lot of people who have friends and loved ones who are in the group of addiction know that there's if that person wants to use there is nothing that's going to stand in their way right nothing because they're not driving the ship at that point right and i i feel like suicide is similar mm-hmm. but it's different in the sense that you can put up better roadblocks for people um you can institute waiting periods for guns right you know you can make it harder and i think every time you make it a little bit harder i mean that does some good well, that's the idea behind the guardrails on the bridges. Yeah. Just make it harder, get through that moment. Mm-hmm. Because it's true also, I read somewhere that most suicide ideations like last less than a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you can get through that minute, you know, you, you're, you, you have a chance of getting better. Right. I mean, which is sort of the language of addiction, too. Yeah. You know, today I'm not going to drink. Right. And I, I want to hear, uh, if you'd like to share it, if you're willing to share it, kind of what led up to to your attempts and and what was going on you know in your brain like let's get to that relatable moment and I, and I know for for your show we need to to drop in a break right we'll drop in a break right here all right this break time you're listening to with friends like these with Anna Marie Cox are you hiring do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy to use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And I'm probably a bad person, but you know what? I'm sort of hoping that there's some uh, former Republican congressman that might be, you know, uh, on ZipRecruiter in a year, year and a half. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Uh, you know, give a former Republican congressman a job. They uh, might not do as much damage for you as they've done to us. Now we're back. Now the we're magic back. of radio. We're actually just like, we never went away, but. No, we were just sitting here. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about your your semicolon and your uh, your bipolar and your addiction and the 
circumstances that led up to your attempt to deal with it in the wrong way. Yes, the permanent solution to a temporary problem, as people often say. So for me, it really is tied up with my mental illness and my addiction. I I think I would have defied odds had I not attempted suicide. Mm. Um, But, you know, I was in the depths of both. I was an untreated manic depressive. Um, I'm, I'm bipolar two, uh, which tends to have lower highs and lower lows. That's it's the Catherine Zeta Jones Demi Lovato bipolar. <laughs> well, <a> sexy bipolar, <laughs> isn't yes. it? Yes. Uh, and, and the highs are not as manic as uh, sort of what you think of the uh, Homeland bipolar, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Claire Danes bipolar. Um, not the actress herself, but uh, the character. character. Um, but the lows are, you are just, you know, uh, frozen and immobilized and, you know, in that darkest, darkest depth. And of course I was, um, using depressants, which, uh, just make it worse, alcohol and also, um, benzos, uh, both of which are, and, and also I was, you know, courting death just by mixing those two things. What are benzos? Benzodiazepines. um, Xanax is the most popular one. That's what I was doing. Um, I had a prescription, you know, like when I went. That means it's healthy. Yeah, it's good for you. Um, And my, you know, my marriage was in trouble. um, And I felt, and my consequences, as as we say, were adding up. My legal consequences, my work consequences. um, You know, I'd been arrested for uh, DUI, um, you know, my my work was really, you know, starting to suffer um, and being coming kind of erratic, more than just typical freelance writer erratic, mm-hmm. <laughs> like really erratic in my work. It's good with a, a writer and journalist to know that you can count on them. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Although we're also notoriously erratic but right. there's like ba- but like you I was outside the boundaries like editors had no idea what they were going to get you uh-huh. know um so my f- overall feeling in that period was just of guilt um crushing guilt that you would let somebody down let Everyone yourself down one down yeah. and that I was a burden and that I was never going to get better and that I and this profound loneliness, too. Because um, nobody understood what you were going through. But then I felt, I felt stupid for thinking that. You know, I'm smart enough to know that, like, other people go through this. I've read the books. You know, I, I mean, I, I, knew what, I knew what my diagnosis was, right? Sure. Um, but I just, yeah, I would say loneliness and guilt were the, the things that weighed down on me. And actually, like, even telling you this right now, I can feel, I can feel it the way that I felt it then, which is like this feeling in your chest of weight, mm-hmm. like, a, like a metal band around my chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know it's there, but that doesn't make it any more comfortable. Right. And, and you know, drinking and using helped. I mean, I, I mean— Relieve the symptoms. Relieve the symptoms. And, you know, I just basically came to a point uh, where I thought the only solution— was to just not exist. That I was never going to get better. I was never going to be anything but a burden. I was never going to escape this crushing guilt. And everyone would be better off, including myself, if I ceased to exist. 
did you think that that would that there would be relief for you that followed that because this is sort of the conundrum of suicide right is right. that you there is no you to feel better as dick cavett said yeah and this is where maybe sort of the fog of using comes in because it it wasn't it most addicts and alcoholics aren't thinking about consequences in general so i think that in a weird way like i was i was i was being just as short-sighted with my thoughts of suicide as I was with, you know, drunk driving. Like, I wasn't thinking about about what would happen next. Right. If you I had d- been, you wouldn't be doing those things in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah. I was just thinking, it, it's sort of, um, I often compare it to, like, it's just like being in extreme pain of any kind. Like, you just want relief from your pain. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about what's going to happen after you get that relief. Like, the feeling of pain is so overwhelming. It's so present. You can't think straight. Right. You know? And so you don't make good decisions. You're not making good decisions. And so, you know, that I yeah, I, I took I, I I took what I had. Um I just gotten a fresh prescription. Um and then I was just really lucky. Um uh I made it I made it. Um and I, I woke up in the ER. Wait, wait. <laughs> describe the circumstances. I'm so glad you made it. Describe the circumstances that you were in. Like, where were you? What What was going on when you uh, when you took them? And what did you take? Well, I don't want to get into too much detail. Okay, yeah. Uh, let's Let's not get into what you took because we and, don't want to give people any details. And I don't want to get. Oh. Um, let's see. So I was actually on a business trip, which is sort of embarrassing too. But like, that's my. You know, travel's a total trigger, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, um, it's for a lot of people, both depressives and for um, people with substance abuse orders, because you're away. So mm-hmm. there's kind of this feeling of like, oh, I can get away with it, or right. it's a special occasion, or whatever. So, um, I was. It was at the end of a day that I had, you know, I'd sort of been good, quote unquote good, um, but then had relapsed and uh, was being called on it. And I, I, I just made this decision of, you know, not thinking about what it would do to the people in my life, not thinking about my husband at the time, not thinking about my family, my mother, my father. That's another thing that's really short-sighted. It's, it's incredibly self. I mean, I feel like I can say this. It's an incredibly selfish thing to do. Like yeah. committing suicide is really fucking selfish. Right. But the disease, the addiction or the or the depression or whatever it is, is blinding you to that. Right. Um, so I wasn't thinking about anyone or anything else. I was just thinking about my pain. And uh, so I took um, this – I had this brand new Xanax prescription. I was already pretty bloated um, on booze. And I just – you know, I just swallowed everything. Uh, and I was lucky, you know, um, my ex-husband found me. Before things got too bad, and uh, ambul- I mean, I don't remember any of anything really, except w- waking up. You didn't expect to wake. I up. I didn't expect to wake up. I was so pissed. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't. You weren't like, oh, another chance at life. No. Well, I pissed. I was kind of like, I felt defeated. I was defeated is probably the better word. I felt like, I think my like exact sort of thought was, oh, fuck, like. <laughs> Fine, you know. I guess. All right, fine. Another obstacle. You know. Yeah. Well, no, it was it was the sense of surrender, which is a good thing. Yeah. 
you know, higher uh, power, higher power. I did have a moment of like, I wasn't thinking in terms of higher power. Like I'd been to AA or whatever, but like, I wasn't really thinking about recovery, but I just remember thinking, okay, fine. Like you win this round, you know, <laughs> I'll give it another shot. Meaning I'll give, you know, life another yeah. shot. Yeah. Cause I had this, I did have this really, um, overwhelming feeling of, well, that that there must be some other plan for me. Hmm. Were you religious? Before? I was not religious, and it's hard to talk about it because it was just this real sense. And I don't mean to, I don't want to make it like mystical or anything, but it no. was more like, again, like I I wasn't even thinking in terms of a god or a higher power, but I was thinking, all right, fine. I was surrendering to something when I said, all right, fine. Mm-hmm. Like I'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. It was some sense of like, okay, well that didn't work, and I am out of ideas. Mm-hmm. I am just done. Because that was the last, that was my, that played my last card. Yeah. And it didn't work. So I guess I'm just, you know, to sit, use the, you know, cards before, I'm just, I'm just sitting there. I'm just like going to, whatever cards come my way. Yeah. Like. What's the Dorothy Parker line? Like, poison tastes awful, might as well live. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it was, yeah, it was sort of a might as well live situation. And I was in this place of just complete befuddlement and surrender. And so I started to basically do most of what people suggested. What the very first thing was, which is was unavoidable, was not a suggestion. <laughs> it was a very, very firm uh, requirement by the state that I go to a psych ward for a while. Ah, involuntary so, Involuntary commitment. Yay. Now, from what I've heard, and I've, I've talked to a few people on my show who've gone through this, um, <laughs> Maria Bamford, actually Maria Bamford has, talks about this on her brand new Netflix special, that... If you're looking to go somewhere to get healed, no. <laughs> you're just going into basically a tank where they take away your phone and you have to watch really bad TV yeah. with people who might even be worse off than you. Right. Oh, this was a definitely worse off than me situation. Um, I had been in, uh, committed before, um, voluntarily committed uh, to a psych ward where – it was very posh. It was like a private hospital mm. and like you got to keep your own clothes and order off a menu and mm-hmm. have your phone. And <laughs> it was it was a little just like kind of a spa. Like it uh-huh. was, it, I mean, you know, like a kind of a downscale spa maybe. Uh-huh. Right. Um, this. The this, public university of, it, of spas. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was a public hospital that I went to. And I say this. With love and respect, but it had like, you know, actual crazy people, like mm-hmm. people who were manifesting their symptoms, not just rich people who were trying to deal. Like yeah. this was were people, you know, schizophrenics, psychotics, like, psychotics. Yeah. and um, thank God for them, man. Like I because I belong there. It was this breakthrough for me. It was like fine. It was like being like, you know what? I can't fool myself any longer. Like the I'm crazy too. When I say like they're real real crazy people this word, like well, I'm I was one of them. Like yeah. I went crazy. That's why you were there. I was there because I was crazy. I was there because I could not be trusted. You know, they took we took away all the sharp objects and the, you know, shoelaces and belts and we had to eat with everything with spoons. <laughs> <laughs> and had you? I mean, that must have been it only color with crayons. We actually the adult <laughs> coloring book craze like that happened. I laughed so hard when it sort of started because they had coloring books when I was in the psych ward. Yeah, and uh, we could we had to color with crayons because we weren't wow. trusted with other. <laughs> yeah, you're back in kindergarten. <laughs> and um, I remember complimenting uh, the aide that had them. Like they sort of ran the coloring book. 
<laughs> our <laughs> your dealer, your hookup with the crayons. Yeah, with the crayons, because they were like fairly like non. You know, there w- wasn't a lot of frozen. We were actually there were like you know mandelas and like unicorns and stuff. And uh, he was talking about how hard it was to find non children. Yeah, you don't oriented. Want- Door of the Explorer. Color, yeah, coloring point. books. And I'm like, he, and I was, when the adult coloring book craze happened, I was like, wow, his life is useful. <laughs> Thank God for that. He's finally caught he's a got, break. He's got a break. He doesn't have to like go searching through deviant art forums <laughs> to print something up on his little <laughs> HP right. printer. He can, he can buy whole books. Like, I, 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 good for him. Like, his life is easier now. Was there a, a, a marker that you had to hit in order to get out of there or one that you were aware of? It was of, a like, time period. It was just a time period. Oh, okay. Um, you had to do time. Had to do time. But it was, joined. it was, I'm so glad it, it happened. Uh, not only did, there was an A, someone brought an AA meeting to that uh, psych ward and I don't remember anything about the meeting except just thinking the two people that brought it had, you know, part of their story, they said that they'd been in psych wards themselves and they seemed to be having decent lives. Mm-hmm. And I had that grasping thought that a lot of people have, which is that, okay, all right, they did it. So it's possible. All right, maybe me. You know, okay, all right. It's, had you like, owned up I, to being an addict at that point? I knew. Um, yeah. But you had you said it out loud? I'd said it. I'd been to meetings, but... Um, you know, like the you hear a lot from people in, with substance resources, like terminal uniqueness, and by that they mean terminal as in a disease. Mm. Like it's it's a it's a deadly form of uniqueness, and that's what people you know often have. And I felt like I had that. I I definitely had thought I was like, well, it wouldn't work for me. Like that it works for you guys, but not me. And but you know, having this kind of bottom made me, and seeing other people who had been through it made me think, all right, this is it could work for me. Yeah. And the other thing that happened at that meeting was everyone had to go to everything because there weren't enough people to, you know, have separate groups. So, right. like, you had the actual crazy people at the at the AA meeting, too. And I don't want to – I now feel like I can't – I shouldn't talk too much about it. But let's just say, like, there are some really interesting shares because – Some colorful some stories. Some colorful stories. That may or may not be rooted in reality, reality as we know it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, there are two other gentlemen there that – were lucid, <laughs> who identified as alcoholics. I remember like bonding with them, and they were both uh, there as guests of the state, mm-hmm. um, both black guys. And actually, I remember having a moment with them where they asked me what I was going to be doing after I got out, and I was like, "Oh, well, they want me to go to treatment." Um, and they both were like, "Oh man, that's awesome!" And I was like, <laughs> you "Got a ticket?" I was like, "Oh right, like." That is awesome. I do get to go to treatment, you know. Because you're a, a white lady? Because I'm a white lady with insurance and, you know, resources. Yeah. And yeah. they they were ta- – yeah, like they – you know, one guy was going to sign up for um, sign up for a study, a research study in order to get treatment. And the other guy just didn't know what was going to happen. Wow. Um, and then the other really amazing thing that happened while I was there was there was this woman um, – who I think was probably schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. She had a very loose relationship, which went to the reality when we would be in group to talk. Like her, her shares were off, you know, would kind of go off into very uh, fant- into fantasy. Mm-hmm. And she was f- 
couple things. I remember she was actually really beautiful. Um, she was sort of older. Um, she looked like the lead singer of, I think said this, like uh, Kim Gordon. She looked like Kim uh, Gordon. Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth, yeah. yeah. And she was trying to share at a group session once. And I, she was so frustrated. I remember she got this look on her face. Like you're, like when you're trying to remember a word like or something, but she, what she said was, I can't make my words match my mind. Wow. Those are some words to live by. And I, I just was like, same, <laughs> you know, that's sort of the whole, same. that's sort of the whole thing. Like if you break your leg, there's all sorts of terminology for exactly what the problem is. If there's a vertebra problem, you you can identify which you can't do that with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about I think about that woman a lot. Actually, I know. I hope she's can't make your words match your brain. Yeah, match your mind. Mind, mind, brain. Mind, it was, brain but it was this is the idea that like again, it's just what I what I want to tell you is inexpressible. Yeah, what I'm trying to tell you is uh, is impossible to express. Must have been heavy for you as a writer too. Because your whole job is to express those things with words. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can try. I mean, I think we're doing an okay job talking about it right now. But, yeah. um, you know, I think that anyone who's been through it, any kind of mental illness, um, understands that there is ultimately very lonely feeling. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why it feels so lonely is because you don't. It's. The feelings do not translate very well at all, even for writer, the, be- the most best writers in the world. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, I, I've been dealing with this, like I said, for a very long time, and, and I've reached several sort of resigned points where I'm like, well, screw it. I'm, this isn't going to get cured. Um, this is going to be good at sometimes and bad at other times. But I'm just weird. Like that that's always the term that's that's been in my head. It's like I know I'm not I'm not processing things like I think other people are. I'm not responding to situations like other people do. Sometimes I am, but often not. And screw it. I'm just weird. I'm just gonna be weird forever. And it <laughs> and it took you know, someone diagnosing me, no, this is you have a chemical thing. You have a, a disease called depression. Here are ways we can yeah. treat it that has uh, led me to start thinking of it in in other terms or attempt to. I don't always succeed. I still think I'm awfully weird. I think weird's a good word. I also think diagnoses are incredibly freeing, actually. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think some people see being diagnosed with a mental illness, whether it's addiction or depression or bipolar, as a sentence of some kind, as a limiting thing. Right. Like I had the experience because it happened for me when I was in treatment of it being very freeing sense because I was like, oh, so that's what's wrong with me. Yeah, you are understood. Like, it's sort of go to go back to, like, feeling like you can't express stuff. It's like being told, like, oh, that's a broken leg. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know. And we can, we'd have some things that we can do. Yeah, I've dealt with three broken legs this week in this office. Right. And here, here's my plan for your, to help heal you. And it works sometimes. I mean, it's, it's unlike other illnesses, yeah. physical illnesses, because it's a lot of guesswork still. Yeah. But both, both being diagnosed as an addict and also being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which another word we 
talked about earlier, disorder is a weird word, but mm-hmm. um, being bipolar. You're a bipolar American. I'm a bipolar American. That's right. <laughs> um, it was like, woohoo, okay, well, that explains a lot. Yeah. That is Did you get the bipolar? Honestly, the, my first thought was, well, that, that does explain a lot. Right, that connects some things. <laughs> Did you get that diagnosis while you were in lockup? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, but it, then I, more thorough you know, conversations and diagnoses um, once I was in treatment and stabilized. Because, you know, part of the problem in the lockup was that I was still basically kind of coming out of, you know, I was going through withdrawal. Like I wasn't, I wasn't well for a lot of reasons. Um, So I sort of stabilized in treatment. I was in treatment for four months. Wow. Uh, Highly recommended if if you can afford it. Um, If the insurance gods grant you the power. If the insurance gods grant you the power. You and I talked about we might, we might have to do a sidebar on insurance coverage yeah. Yeah. and um but i for people with co-occurring disorders often suggested they do long-term uh inpatient uh, treatment and i was lucky enough to be able to do that which actually insurance did not cover the long-term part i have to, my father to thank for being able to do do it he was um really amazingly you know he's my dad so of course he did it but on the other hand yeah you were very fortunate I, very fortunate um so, but it was the sense I really, really did have like, oh, that really does connect the dots on some things. Like I'm, I'm a very specific kind of weird. Yes. <laughs> like it's not just <laughs> amorphously weird. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, guaranteed. There is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone and it is by far the easiest way I've found to buy concert tickets. I actually, um, I bought tickets to see Coldplay, which don't tell anyone because it's um, not my favorite band. It's my my husband's favorite. Well, I won't say it's his favorite band. That would embarrass him. But he um, he likes Coldplay. I, I, I put it down to our age difference, um, basically. But anyway, they're coming to town and I was pretty sure I wasn't gonna be able to find tickets, but I could, I did. I found tickets. I found tickets at lots of different prices. I had to do a little bit of calculation about how much do I want to see this band versus how much does my husband want to see this band? Um, and how much would he be willing to spend to see my favorite band, which is not his favorite band. Um, anyway, I'll let you know how that turns out. Um, but we got the tickets and it was super, super, super easy. Uh, it is designed to make your ticket buying experience easy. So it does that. Uh, it saves you time and money by searching for multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. To get the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FRIENDS today. That's promo code FRIENDS for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Do it for someone you love. 
there's some stuff that I did that I couldn't explain to myself, like behaviors, mainly having to do with like kind of the more mania stuff, like when I would like take everything out of my closet and stay up for two days, like organizing it or like I would like develop these grand plans for books and order a thousand things off Amazon and uh-huh. you know, then get depressed and just look at the boxes, you know. Uh, but you were you were an achiever too. Mm-hmm. Like this, I talked with with Peter Sagel from Wait Wait about this. Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, and, and he talked about uh, you know he got into a great college and he wrote mm-hmm. plays that got produced and like he was sort of on the run from his from his mental illness if he just kept achieving then see everything's fine clearly and you had a you've had a really interesting and varied and successful career yeah although of course in the inside it's always not successful enough never mm. successful enough yes. ever yes. ever ever enough because i i mean i i i've gone through something similar where where you once i got a national radio show i'm like oh my god now my problems will be solved Oh wait, that's not going to fill the hole that's inside. Not going to fill the hole inside, and also, um, I think this is common for people with all the different things that we have, <laughs> which is that if I can do it, then it must be a dumb. Like right. if I can do it, it, it's not that hard, and my achievements are worthless. And or I'm a fraud who will soon be exposed. Or a fraud who I mean, so everything I ever did that was like a big deal, I'd be like, oh well, I guess it's not a big deal. I thought that would be a big deal, but it's not because I could do it. So that means any any idiot could. <laughs> So on to the next thing that I think is hard, and then if I achieve it, then, oh, well, I guess, yeah, that, that turned out to be, like, not really important either. Right. Um, so, I mean, I was, like, you know, I also come from an alcoholic family, and that's a very, like, adult child of alcoholic kind of thing, too. Like, yes. trying to fill the fill the hole with accomplishments yeah. and achievements. Look at me, look at me, look at me. <laughs> and also, you don't have to worry about me. Right. I am good. Yes. I am good. You don't I'm have not to a worry to about you. you. I'm not a burden to you. Yeah. Which I think is I, – I, I imagine there's some of – for your brother, some of that. I think so. I mean I think – and we have we have alcoholism in our family as well. And you know, for me, like I, I took to, to theater at a very early age and I, <laughs> I was telling somebody the other day – I've never been a good enough actor to make it big as an actor, but I've been a good enough actor to get through a lot of situations. <laughs> I'm just good enough for that. Um, you know, probably can't play Hamlet, but I can get out of a party once in a while. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I th- and I think, like, my brother dealt with uh, the, the chronic, uh, you know, dormant mental illness in our family and the, the substance abuse issues, and I'm sure he was – predisposed to a lot of that and from a very early age uh, he started smoking pot and that led to a bunch of other things and most of which I don't know about but I know there were DUIs and I know there was uh, I know there was problem gambling in mm-hmm. his life and uh, I think he he was I mean to use the term a lot of people use self-medicating mm-hmm. he was he was trying to make that pain go away. I, I think it. I mean, it works till it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Like that's another sort of saying. Right. But it it does work for a while. Like yeah. the achieving works for a while. Yeah. You know, uh, and but eventually, the more things you try to use to fill that emptiness, the emptiness just gets bigger. Right. Like the emptiness <laughs> stretches, you know, out the more you put in it, unless you address the emptiness itself. Or be, and I think not to just abuse our metaphors, but. I think what happens in recovery 
for either addiction or mental illness is you just you do address the void. Mm-hmm. Like you're just like, you know what? That's there. Yeah. And it's something I'm going to have to work on, but I can't just stuff it with other things and right. or pretend it doesn't exist. Right. I just have to be okay with like naming it. Naming it and not being okay. Like I have to be okay with not being okay. Yeah. 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 And in a weird way, that's how you start to get better. Well, it's the elephant in the room. Right. You're you're saying, look, this is a thing that exists. And and I you know, we we started our podcast about depression and I thought, oh, this will be kind of a a fun little thing. I get to talk to some of my friends and, and you know. You actually probably did have that thought, didn't you? It'll be fun. It'll be fun. And, and you know, I mean, I, I did sort of look at what was on my, my mental, what was in my mental pantry that mm-hmm. I had available to work with. And I'm like, well, I know a lot of comedians and I'm depressed. <laughs> Let's see if we can make a pie out of that. <laughs> it's like the podcasts are like the omelet of media. Yeah, it's just throw it all yeah, in the Yeah, just pan. like, what do I have? Yeah, oh, I have some I'll just stir that, that up, a yeah. little olive oil. Yeah. Um, and, and people have really responded to it, I think, because – and this – it astonishes me how much people respond to open conversation mm-hmm. about this because I'm kind of used to being a, a semi-public figure, and I know you are too. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess a lot of people don't talk about these things. Yeah, and I'm always – I mean, that's one of the reasons why we decided to, to talk about this, uh, you know, for a podcast and put it out yeah. is because I do think it helps people because it, there isn't enough conversation about these issues, especially around suicide. Um, there are 41,000 suicides every year. And we're at like a 30-year high on them. Yeah, um, yeah. and drug and alcohol-related suicides are up 50 percent in the last 10 years. Um a third of all suicides, I think, have some kind of, you know, alcohol or drugs involved. Um, and they're pointing to uh, widening economic disparity yeah. as a huge contributing factor right now, too. Yeah. And then you got so all the military. It's a great idea to take away some health care. That's what you want to do. <laughs> what you want to do at a moment like this is take away people's access to mental health care. <sighs> but <laughs> while we still have it, <laughs> um, I think what if we, we start to try and address the prevention part of it. The prevention part of it does mostly lie with the person who's suffering, mm-hmm. you know. And what I would like to, what I would hope that people get out of my talking about it is to, is to go ahead and tell people, tell a doctor, tell a therapist, tell a teacher, yeah. tell, tell some, a spouse tell for a the spouse. first time sometimes. Because one of the things that was, I feel like I can laugh about now, but, um, I thought everybody thought about suicide. I thought that that was I thought that was normal. I thought, <laughs> and I know it seems so. You ridiculous. had the, you had the ideation for, for a long years, time. Yeah, years, years <laughs> and years. I, I hope my dad doesn't get upset listening to this. But um, you know, going back to like probably even earlier than junior high, not active, mm-hmm. which is another reason why I thought it was sort of normal. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't, like, taking steps. I wasn't making a plan. It was more like just this passing thought of, like, oh, that's an option. Yeah. That is an option that, that I have. And I just assumed everyone else, like, when they w- were going through the ways they had to deal with life, like, that's always option E. You know, like, you can do this A, B, C, D, or E. Yeah. Kill yourself. Eh, all right. No, not this time. Yeah. Right? A lot of people never consider E. I, I always think it's like you're on a freeway. 
and suicide is the off ramp, mm-hmm. but nobody nobody else realizes. Everybody else thinks they're on like some kind of expressway <laughs> where there's no off ramp, and you're like, "Don't you see what it just yeah. went by?" Yeah, you could do that. And I, so I was constantly making the choice to not not do it. Yeah. And because I was making the choice not to, I never thought about the fact that I had it in my mind at all, and I never talked about it to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most helpful things I did in treatment was my counselor had me keep track of of times I thought about self-harm. Wow. And it turns out it was like a, you know, it was multiple times a day. And she <laughs> she was like, and on it, that's not, it's not normal. It's not. It's okay. It's okay that it's not normal. Yeah. But it's not. And you deserve to have someone help you with this. Yeah. Which is a huge leap to make. To The first leap is like to share it all. And then the second leap is like, oh, but you, I also get help for this? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Right. Right. It's, it's not normal and it's addressable. Um, I remember, you know, very first time I was uh, clinically depressed, which I was diagnosed as a depressive before bipolar. It's, I think, somewhat normal to get for people to miss the manic part of bipolar 2. Yeah. And the, with bipolar 2, it's kind of an umbrella diagnosis where depression is part of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but I remember the very, when I was first diagnosed with depression, I didn't want to take the antidepressants because I thought it was cheating. <laughs> it was like, I don't deserve to take this antidepressants because then I'll just feel better. I won't have done the work. Man, ear infections make... never do this. Like, <laughs> depression is so insidious. It's like, it, it, it's destroying all your ability to fight it. You know, you never get this from strep throat. Yeah, I didn't strep deserve Strep throat isn't a jerk like that. I don't. Strep throat never makes you think like, oh, you didn't earn that antibiotic. <laughs> right. You, you deserve just, an infection. You just have to suffer through this infection <laughs> until you get better by yourself. God. I totally, I mean, I, and that's the way I, I and although I did, did take antidepressants, you know, I, I still kept drinking, which so it didn't really help. They didn't, weren't able to do their job. And I still carried with me that kind of attitude of, like, I, I need to be able to fix this myself. Like, I don't deserve help for this. Mm. Um, and I also really would like people to understand that uh, suicide ideation is, is not normal and you get to talk to people about it. And also attempts, no matter how, quote, unquote, unserious they may seem, are fucking serious. Yeah. And you deserve help for them, too. And there's no – I think I felt and I also – I somehow got the message that, like, my first attempt, since it wasn't really serious, like, was I kind of felt bad. I felt like I was, I was being, like, a drama queen. Well, and, and people use that term, oh, that's just a cry for help. That's just a cry. For, well, it's a cry for help. It's a cry for help. <laughs> it's like if someone's out there in the ocean drowning and they're – crying for help yeah you don't say oh well just get over it yeah you know pull yourself the water's not that deep come on like if someone's in the so let's say you know it's it's the the swimming metaphor right uh if someone drowning if in the water's only 10 feet deep you're Mm -hmm. not like water's only 10 feet deep i can swim out of that why can't you like yeah you can't touch the ground you still could drown but it's only i mean it's not like you're in the ocean it's not like you're really in the ocean like call us Call us when you're in the ocean. Right. Well, then we'll save you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember when I was uh, I worked at Amazon.com before I got into radio, and it was it was a very I mean I think they're all intense times at at Amazon. There was that New York Times article a while ago about 
you know, they discovered all these people from Amazon cried at their desks. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what you, you get in in the morning. You check yeah. your meetings. You check your email. You cry. Then you, you know, yeah. you, you fire something up. It's like the two-minute hate. There's like the two-minute yeah, cry. Exactly. Yeah. And I was working on some project with a really crazy deadline. And I was – I remember driving into work like, wouldn't it be great if I just killed myself? Hmm. Oh, well, I guess I better get to work. And it just – and I think it was so sudden and so – such a strange thought. I'm like, okay, I can recognize that as an intrusive thought. Mm. <laughs> like that is not a legitimate option that I can do. But how strange that the wiring in my brain, which I did not set up, uh, goes to that place. Yeah, and it and there's just some of us it does, and yeah. it is it does take, and it takes some work to stop thinking like that. Yeah. But now I don't think like that. And it, every once in a while I have to I have to be I have to take a step back and be like, wow. Like yeah. that's not on my radar anymore. That's gotta feel good. It it doesn't feel like anything unless I recognize it. Uh-huh. Right. It just feels like, oh, this is what it is like to not think that way. You don't think about it until you think about it. Right. Um because it's the new normal. It's the new normal. But it does take constant work you know i continue to try and heal myself there's no there's no pill i do take lots of different pills all prescribed and none of them uh you know all the, they're good the good kinds of pills um they not mood altering that's what they say that's mm. the difference between you know xanax and uh Wellbutrin. right but uh it there is recovery work to be done and mental illness that is in, in a parallel way to addiction, where, you know, I I I still do daily affirmations, which still feel idiotic. Uh-huh. The very first time I ever was asked to look in the mirror and tell myself that I liked myself, felt like a fucking idiot. Yeah, my and therapist just, has me mentally go to my happy place, and I'm like, oh come on, uh, but it kind of helps. Kind of helps. <laughs> I know. Well, I remember telling my counselor in, in treatment, like, I feel so dumb. Like, I cannot do this. I cannot stand from a mirror and tell myself, like, awesome things about myself. And she was like, okay, what did you do when you were drunk? Were you, mm. could you, like, how does that, was, were you, did you do some stuff that was stupid then? And I was yeah. like, okay, well, good point taken. <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> and then she said, and I said, well, I also don't think it's going to work. I just don't believe this is going to work. Like, I'm too smart for it to work, right? Mm. I'm, I know the truth about myself, which is that I'm a horrible person. So I won't believe this bullshit from myself right. that I'm not. Right. And she said, well, you know, I understand you think that positive affirmations, positive self-talk won't work. How did the negative self-talk work? Did that, did that have an effect? How's that working out How's for that? you? Yeah. And I was like, again, touche. <laughs> Trained therapist. Trained therapist. You are earning your <laughs> keep. And because the negative self-talk, I think we can all recognize this. Negative self-talk totally works. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> That's why so many people love it. Yeah. It is effective. And so, you know, I do positive self-talk. Like, you know, I have a spiritual, like, practice. I try to do meditation. Like, a lot of people, like, a, you know, it's our in American way of life. It's hard to fit in. Yeah. Um, I have a therapist, you know, I see a, I see a psychiatrist every three months to check in on meds. Uh, so it's not like it just goes away and I'm better. So I'm, I never in a very good way, I think I never forget that I'm on this journey of, of getting better. Like there's always like, it's all, it's, it's not going to end. 
It's you know. funny how the the ridiculous stuff works really well. I mean, I guess there's a, a reason why it became a cliche is because it became so present. I mean, I like I, I was talking about with my brother. I wrote this book where I talked about you know the circumstances with which some people kill themselves in a, at a gun range, and then a few months later he did mm-hmm. that exact thing. And uh, I was, you know, I was like, well, I gave him the idea, the blood's on my hands. Mm -hmm. Or when he was calling me over the years and I got the sense that he was just trying to hit me up for money, I wouldn't return his calls. And if I had, he'd be alive. And I've got, you know, I went through therapy and I, (laughs) I went through all these things in therapy talking about that. And I would say, well... Isn't it a little convenient to say that I'm not responsible? <laughs> like, doesn't that get me off the hook a little bit? Too e- isn't that a plot it's a device? Like, I don't deserve to get better. Yeah, and and uh, and I had a therapist who said, "Isn't it a little convenient to say that you are responsible?" Yeah. Um, but what it really took, because I couldn't, I could understand intellectually every drop of not being responsible. Like, I I got it, and. I got the reasoning. I got the, you know, the research. Fine. But I couldn't in my heart do it. Mm-hmm. And I did um, EMDR. Have you ever oh, heard yeah. of this? Yeah. Where you, and you have these little electrical buzzers in your hand. suspiciously like Scientology. It I, sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. Yeah. And, but. Um, but um, by these little, like, brain retraining things and concentrating on the very devastating um, but truthful sentence, Rick shot himself. Mm-hmm. Those three words. Um, you know, it's a devastating thing to hear about your hero, your big brother who taught you how to drive. Um, but it it really has pushed me towards a truth that I can then work to maintain. But it came with hand buzzers. <laughs> Like cans, right? Yeah. They're like sort of like the Scientology cans. Exactly. I know. And, you know, I was waiting for the therapist to want me to sign up for (laughs) $10,000 in extra classes or send me off to Sea Org, but that didn't happen. And it's been recommended to me. I haven't – I've been able to muddle forward without it. But, yeah, apparently, especially highly traumatic events, it's been suggested to me to deal with, you know, some of the other traumas in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it does it, our brains are so weird. Yeah. Like, they're just they're just goo and nobody really knows how they work. Like antidepressants, no one's really sure like exactly how they work. No yeah. one's really sure how addiction works. Yeah. Um there's indication that depression might be related to swelling. Like oh. there might be some swelling in there. Yeah. Sure. Why know, not? It's some... all goo. Why shouldn't it swell? <laughs> I I like the theory that um a lot of uh, mental disorders are sort of like OCD. Mm-hmm. That that's why like Wellbutrin is used to treat a bunch of different stuff. The compulsiveness because it's a, every a lot of it's compulsion, right? Yeah. And I do think of like my suicide ideation was a compulsion. Yeah. Like was something like it was a it, it turned into this thought that was just present. Right, just routes right back to that place. Yeah, and like I don't even want to say out loud like the negative self-talk that I had, but I had a very distinct litany. I might look at it like, okay, see, I'm going to tear up. Like, I'm, it's a, okay. I'm a bad person. That's why we put Kleenex in yeah. the studio. Like, I had, I had this tape in my head that's like, 
I'm a bad person. I deserve, I don't, I don't deserve anything. I'm a bad person. I don't deserve this. I'm a bad person. And it would just, you know, loop, loop. Um, I'm a bad person. I want to die. I'm a bad person. I want to die. I'm a bad person. I want to die. And it was like a tape loop. I, I tried to, another thing, like I can't make my words match my brain. I would try to describe it to people and it, cause it feels like a tape loop somehow in your head. Like I have this image of like a, of the real to real, like running behind my eyes. And, um, it would be intrusive and would not go away and would occur to me at the weirdest times. And eventually it was, it was inescapable, mm-hmm. you know. Was it comforting in a way? I do think so. Yeah. I do think that. Because there must be a reason you kept going back to it. I, I think in some ways that that is what compulsiveness yeah. teaches you. It's a catechism. Is, is it teaches you to be comfortable with those things? You develop an addiction Mm-hmm. to it mm-hmm. and when it goes away like you have to learn other ways to think yeah and you have to learn a new reality to ground yourself in because that one is is familiar but toxic yeah and it's I, i've said to people a thousand times like for me cutting out the drugs and alcohol was relatively easy like i just i happened to luck out kind of just physiologically uh-huh. i didn't have a terrible time um i wasn't addicted to opiates number one with those are physically right pretty tough to kick just the physiology of it yeah um alcohol can be bad too benzos can be bad too but actually some people say they're worse but i just you know whatever combination of things happened my physically i got out of it okay Mm -hmm. and i also was lucky in not dealing with cravings very much because i think that's because i had such just a violent not violent but like a low physical bottom Mm -hmm. i don't know whatever like my point is that uh, the addiction to negative self-talk was so much harder to break. The addiction to hating myself. Oh. Like that's the thing. That's the addiction that props up the most frequently in my life today yeah. is when times are bad, what do I reach for? I reach for the bottle of self-hatred. Yeah. Because you know? those chemicals Sweet. haven't leached out of your system like the alcohol yeah. did. And that self-hatred and, and self-abuse, you know, abuse, like that. that is just – it's poison, like alcohol and drugs are poison, but I will just – it is right there at my fingertips. It is right there for me if I want it, and it's the hardest thing to put down. Yeah. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. Sending flowers has always been the best way to show someone you care. But if you're the one doing the sending, it isn't always easy or satisfying. You are lured in with that $19.99 advertised price, but when you check out, it is $94. What happened? There are hidden fees that leave you with a big bill and even bigger disappointment when the flowers show up looking different than the pictures and they only last a few days. Books.com is a better way to buy flowers. The Books company offers a fully transparent pricing, an easy, affordable shopping experience, and an incredible curated selection of flowers starting at $40, including free delivery. But that's a transparent price, $40 with free delivery. There's no those fees and shipping and what do you want to do with this and what do you want to do with that and the upselling. They don't do that. Transparent pricing. Each book is sustainably farmed too. And it comes straight from the grower to the customer, meaning your flowers last longer and cost less to buy. Their farm fresh flowers are cut fresh and sourced from sustainable, eco-friendly farms. 
your flowers last so long, your money goes a long way. In fact, I got some books uh, and they came while we were uh, traveling and I came back and they were still they were still there. They was it was so actually nice to come home to um, the cat sitter. Um, got to enjoy them before we did, but we enjoyed them for a good long time as well. This year, show every mom in your life you care with flowers from the Books Company. And there is a special offer for my listeners. Order now and get 20% off. Hurry, the flowers will sell out. So don't wait. Just visit books.com and enter code FRIENDS for 20% off your Mother's Day purchase. Again, that's books, B-O-U-Q-S.com, code FRIENDS at checkout. And dudes, you could be a better husband or boyfriend or brother or son with a never forget subscription, a regular reminder and delivery for those occasions that tend to slip the male mind dates like birthdays and anniversaries. Visit books.com and enter friends for 20% off your Mother's Day purchase. That's books.com, B-O-U-Q-S.com, code friends at checkout. Let me ask you this. How do you, how do you feel about, you know, we're, we're, we're in a comfortable studio right now. Mm. There's a friendly engineer on the other side of the glass. It's a sunny day. This is all going to go out into the world. Um, how are you feeling about that? Nervous. Um, I do believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe the confluence of events and conversations that brought us to this very moment didn't feel forced. Mm -hmm. Everything kind of just sort of happened to line up. Mm -hmm. And I also feel really strongly that there are people out there who may, after listening to this, call someone. And that's all it takes. I mean, I don't see that it takes because it's, it's, these are diseases that are pernicious and you, you're going to need more help than a call. But a call is huge. A call is huge and a call is the first step on a long journey. And just to tell someone, <clears throat> like, this is what I am dealing with right now, mm-hmm. it is serious and you deserve help. Mm-hmm. It is serious. If you are thinking about hurting yourself... I, again, I, I had this weird thing where I would be like, well, I don't deserve help because I'm not really serious about it or I don't deserve help because I should be able to deal with or I don't deserve help because I don't want to be a drama queen. I'm, I don't. You deserve help. You deserve it. Yeah. Period. You're a human being. If you are hurting, if you are in pain. There aren't circumstances in which you don't deserve it. Exactly. There are none. None. Right. No matter why it is you think, whatever it is you think that you did to deserve this pain, you don't deserve it and you can have help and it is there for you yeah, and there it, is help there is help there is it it takes some detective work sometimes mm-hmm. and it takes uh, a lot of effort and our healthcare system has a lot of problems um and likely will for a while mm-hmm. but there is there is help and and you know i think if people can channel the persistence of 
this shit that they've been dealing with into a persistence to get better uh, and to, to find that, that help, I think that can go a long way. I mean, I, the way I, when I was, when I was saying goodbye to my brother, when my brother turned into a pile of ashes mm. um, after he died and, and my sister, my older sister was carrying the box with his ashes down to the, the boat where we we're going to go out on Puget Sound and scatter his ashes. And my mom said, is the box heavy? And my sister said, well, he ain't heavy. <laughs> <laughs> because I believe, I believe that comedy and grief can coexist. Um, but I remember thinking, well, okay, what do we have? You know, we all have to fight this with what we have. I could not go through medical school. Mm-hmm. My brain doesn't work that way. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of things I can't do. I can get to a microphone and I can write some things down. I got those skills. I got some friends who are good at talking. And, you know, like, I got some costumes. We got an old barn. Let's put on a show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's we're all, we all just have to do what we can. And I've been, you know, I figure, too, I've been carrying around this shit for so long that why not turn it against itself? Mm-hmm. You know, why not take all this experience that we've had dealing with this and channel it the other way um, into into trying to, to help people. And, and maybe if someone's listening to this, maybe you don't have access to a, a radio studio and, and some good recording equipment, but maybe you have access to a phone mm-hmm. or maybe you have access to checking in on somebody that you're worried about yeah. and and just finding out what's going on. And that's that's all any of us can do. The checking in part, I think, is key. And I, I want to distinguish between checking in and feeling responsible for. Yes. Yes. Um, you are not responsible for people's actions. Right. But it, when you're in that place of feeling undeserving and lonely and guilty, reaching out is a action that defies that. Yeah. It is the um, Petronius <laughs> to the to the depression. It's you, a slap in the you know. face of the disease. Yeah, it is. It is. Because the disease wants you to be alone and suffer, suffer, suffer. Right. So to reach out to someone, you are actually combating the disease. Yeah. You are. To reach out to someone and to say that they're worth it. And also, I don't want to turn this turn too much into like, you know, tips, but like <laughs> – to take someone out uh, for coffee or to go to visit someone who's depressed, to just to let them know, like, they don't have to do anything to yeah. deserve your attention and affection. Right. Like, they can just – because what I would be like is I don't want to go to coffee. I don't want to see you. I don't want to do anything. And, you know, a friend that would say, like, why don't we just watch Bachelor for five hours, you know? Yeah, I'll bring the ice I'll, cream. I'll bring the ice cream. <laughs> that – was that's still tempting? Yeah. <laughs> still totally into it. Yeah, um, that it also helps. Like that is an action too. Like because it's the it's the care and concern. You don't have to say the right thing. In fact, talking sometimes. I'm not gonna say it makes it worse, but like it's not the point. Right. right. Um. The the you're point, not gonna get to the bottom. You're of not it. gonna help. You're not gonna solve it. You know. Yeah. Um. But to just be there to show with an action that you care about someone and that they deserve help mm-hmm. is is that's the healing. That's that's the help that you can really give someone. Um, I also actually now that I think about it, I'm going to cry again. Like I had a friend um, who would just call me and just get on the phone with me, mm-hmm. and I didn't. We didn't. It sounds really strange, but we would watch TV and like not talk. 
Uh, you'd watch the same show. Yeah. 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 And just to feel like someone's presence. Yeah. Reaching out to me. Again, you are you are slapping the disease in the face. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, a human connection if you can make one. Yeah. You know, and, and that's and you're not going to find it on your couch. You yeah. know, you've got to you've got to get out of the house sometimes and and try to do it. But uh, however you, this you however you heal, you're not going to do it by yourself. That's the yeah. Un, that's the nasty truth because your disease would like you to think that you're going to have to do everything by yourself. Yeah, we've been talking on on. I've been interviewing some of our listeners about the weirdest thing that they've done that actually helps oh, cool. to, to address their depression. One one person plays a ukulele, another listens to Disney podcasts. Do you have anything like that that mm. is an unexpected aid? Well, I think that tasks that can be absorbing are mm. are weirdly useful. Yes. Um, they're kind of like a meditation and along those lines. I've become hooked on crossword puzzles. I love crossword puzzles. Those are great. I also knit and crochet. But yep. the weirdest thing, but those are fairly common, but I would say like to volunteer the weirdest part of those habits that I enjoy that help is undoing knots. Really? <laughs> I've discovered this is actually a little bit of a thing. There's a community, I bet. I, I bet there is. I actually haven't discovered the community, but I've found <laughs> other people that, that share this. Like, so, you know, when you have a lot of yarn and string and mm-hmm. whatever, like, it will get knotted if, unless you're totally, like, completely organized about it, and I'm not. You yeah. know? And and so, but there's a part of me that when I see a really nasty knot, like, oh, my yarn's got a little excited. I get a little, I'm like, oh, that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be a tough one. Like, that's going to be a tough one to undo. Woohoo! I actually read. I think the way that I know now, I'm remembering why I know this isn't that weird. Or it may be weird, but it's not completely unique to me. Is there's a Joe Hill novel mm-hmm. where the um, protagonist, who is also an addict, likes to undo knots. Wow! So I don't remember how she gets the knots. Like that is that's the thing that is like I would be if there's like a you know Reddit slash. Yeah, you've got to find a friend who loves tying complicated I know. knots. <laughs> I mean, there must be where I wonder people who are really into this like fetish. I wonder like where they get where do you? There's somebody that sells knots for like really oh, really the best knots. Somebody, like someone in Japan. Somebody listening to this is emailing us right now. <laughs> they just hit send. Where you get your knots? <laughs> Knots.com. Right. I yeah. There's probably I just monetize anything. I guess so. knots query farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's a bonus of doing bonus of being into yarn knots. Knots. Yeah. All right. Do we well, have anything we want to talk about before we sign off? We probably we've we've created a lot of content. We we have made content. We've made highly clickable content. The only thing that I want to do that I want to make sure we get to is uh, in the spirit of of talking about um, getting help, and I'm vamping a little bit here. To, is um, that one of my favorite things that uh, that Google does is if you type in the word suicide, the first thing you get, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. It's confidential. It's free in the United States. Uh, also, there is the crisis text um, line, which now I'm going to have to do my Google. Okay. Because I know that it exists. 
Um, you know, we didn't get to talk about um, the politics of some of the stuff. I, we might have to do that on another show. Yeah. Uh, because as we're doing this, um, I'm reminded that if we lose um, the ban on discriminating against pre-existing conditions, doing things like talking about your mental illness could be used as evidence of having a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. So You're on the record and an insurance company would be able to point to that? Yep. So let's just not do that. Yeah. So call. I will go ahead and say, if you have an interest in this, you might call your representative. uh, Insurance companies, please plug your ears. Yes. Uh, Crisis text hotline, how it works. They're on Twitter, crisis text line. Great. Um, And that's a whole, again, a whole other show. There's been all these improvements in how people uh, reach out to those who are struggling online. There's a lot of people who are thinking about how to do that. But if you're out there and you're struggling, you can also be the one to reach out yourself. It's yeah. an amazing thing to do. And even though you are alone, you're not alone. You're in. I mean this in the least you're creepy way You're not as weird as problem. you think you are. This, I don't mean this in the creepy way, but you're not alone. <laughs> like Help is coming from inside the house. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, help is coming from inside the house. That's help right. is in the back seat of the car with a hook. <laughs> Well, Anna Marie Cox. John Moe. Thank you. Thank you. All right. But Sounds I good. really loved being here. Yeah. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. Fight the power. Well, thanks for making it this far in the show. It's uh, more appreciated than usual. And because John and I uh, kind of muffed up our redirects to helplines, I thought I'd repeat them here. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that's 1-800-273-TALK-8255. And the Crisis Text Line is available on Twitter, and it is also available via text. If you text HOME, that's H-O-M-E, to 741741 from anywhere in the U.S. at any time, you will receive a text back from a live trained crisis counselor, and they will talk you through whatever it is you're going through. And I want to emphasize here, I used to think, you know what, this isn't that important. This isn't an emergency. I'm not in real trouble right now. You know what, if it feels like an emergency to you, that's enough. If it feels bad to you, that's enough. You can reach out for help with that. And by reaching out for help, you are developing skills that will help you uh, do it again in the future and maybe do it when it is a little more urgent. Sometimes we have to practice reaching out for help. And speaking of reaching out for help, allow me to direct you to the other podcasts in the Crooked Media family, which I'm sure you already subscribe to. But if you don't, love it or leave it, which, hell, I'm going to need love it or leave it this week for sure. Uh, and DeRay McKesson's new podcast, Pod Save Us All, Tommy Vitor's Pod Save the World, and of course, the granddaddy of us all, Pod Save America. Um, we are all part of the Crooked Media family, and we love to have you listen to all of us. Um, we're a little competitive about it, but um, I think for the most part, we wish each other well. And if you have anything you want to uh, get in touch with me about, you can tweet at the podcast uh, at crooked underscore friends. Um, you can also email the podcast 
uh, the email address is withfriendslikepod at gmail. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail. You can follow me online at, at Anna Marie Cox. John Moe is at John Moe. And you know what? Again, just thanks for hanging in there. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you are worth every bit um, of the help that you get. Um, so don't worry. Reach out for help if you need it. It is the first thing you do on the road to getting better. And I will see you along the way. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 